hey, it's Guy here. So here's a question. How do you go about searching for and then taking a picture of an elusive, giant, deep-sea creature underwater and in the dark? Well, this is what scientists were trying to do with the giant squid for decades. That is, until Edith Witter found a way to do it. On this episode, we're going to hear ideas about searching for something out of reach and how sometimes that search is more important than what you find. It's called In Search Of, and it originally aired in January of 2015. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. The gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So one night in 1968, Seth Jostak was searching for stars. At a, a radio observatory behind the Sierra Nevada Mountains in California, here in California. Seth was gathering data for his PhD in astrophysics. In those days, the radio observatory and the staff went home at 5 o'clock. And so I was there at 3 in the morning. And it's dark outside and you can hear the coyotes and... You know, it's a very tedious thing. You're just mostly sitting there, occasionally punching a button. And that night, he happened to be reading a book by a Russian astronomer named Joseph Shklovsky, who had a theory for interstellar communication. And it kind of dawned on me that the very instruments that I was using for my research work, which was to study galaxies, in fact, uh, could also be used to pick up signals from extraterrestrial beings. So that became his goal, not just to search for galaxies, but to find life among them. And almost 30 years later, this is in 1997, that search was about to come to an end. Seth was eating dinner with his family at home when the phone rang. And on the line was his boss. Uh, and he said, Seth, I think you ought to come over to the, uh, the Institute because we've got a signal going on and it, it looks pretty good. The Institute is a place called SETI. It stands for Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. It's based in Mountain View, California. And the researchers there monitor signals from outer space, hoping that one of them might be a message. And the way they describe the process is like when you're driving late at night, far away from a city, and you're trying to find something on the radio. And most of the time, you're just tuning through static. But suddenly, a signal pops through. And you know something is out there. And that's what happened at SETI that night in 1997. So I came here and I found, you know, half a dozen of the employees here seated around computer monitors all watching this signal that looked like the real deal. It seemed more promising than anything they'd ever heard. The possibility of alien life reaching out across the cosmos. And all night, the signals kept coming in. You know, this went on and on and it still looked good and we would do various tests and it still looked good and we'd do some more tests and it was still looking good. Your adrenaline must have been racing. <laughs> what I did feel was very nervous because uh, I thought, you know, this is going to wreck up my whole week. I've got dinners planned and, you know, meetings and so <laughs> forth. And now suddenly we found E.T. You guys were like about to change history. What happened? Well, we found out that it was interference. Actually, we had tracked it down. It was due to a, a satellite around the Earth that happened to be its signal was bouncing around the steelwork of our antenna in just the right way. (laughs) You must have been so disappointed. Well, of course. When it turned out that it was only interference, then this other feeling came over me that said, darn it, you know, too bad, just too bad. But we'll keep going. What's it like to search for something that you might never find, that might not even exist? Today on the show... In search of, looking for that elusive thing from aliens to love to mythical sea monsters, and ideas about why the search is almost always more important than what you find. 
So why the search? Here's Seth Chostak's explanation from the TED stage. Now, a lot of people think that this is kind of idealistic, uh, ridiculous, maybe even hopeless. But I just want to talk to you a little bit about why I think that the job I have is actually a privilege. Okay, and give you a little bit of the motivation for my getting into this line of work, if that's what you call it. Now, we still haven't heard anything. In fact, we don't know about any life beyond Earth, but I'm going to suggest to you that that's going to change rather soon. And the part of the reason, in fact, the majority of the reason why I think that's going to change is that the equipment's getting better. Uh, so this means that over the course of the next two dozen years, we'll be able to look at a million star systems a million star systems looking for signals that would prove somebody's out there. Recent results suggest that virtually every star has planets, and more than one. They're like, you know, kittens, you get, you know, you get a litter, you don't get one kitten, you get a bunch. Okay, that's a lot of real estate, but of course, most of these planets are going to be kind of worthless, like, you know, Mercury or Neptune. Neptune's probably not very big in your life. Okay, so the question is, what fraction of these planets are actually suitable for life? The smart money is suggesting that the fraction of planets that might be suitable for life is maybe one in a thousand, one in a hundred, something like that. Well, even taking the, the pessimistic estimate that it's, it's one in a thousand, that means that there are at least a billion cousins of the Earth just in our own galaxy. Statistically, it's actually probably impossible that we are alone, right? Just if you just think about the number of planets in our own galaxy, like at least 100 billion or more. That's correct. That's an argument uh, based on large numbers, of course. And you can't say 100% that it's impossible. It's not impossible. It's just highly improbable because that would make us very, very special. That would make what's happened here on the Earth a miracle. And, you know, a lot of people like to believe in miracles, but if you, you know, you look at the history of, of humanity, or certainly the history of astronomy, you know, Aristotle thought the Earth was the center of everything. Every time we thought we were special, we were wrong. I think that it's a lot safer bet to assume that we're not a miracle yeah. than that we are. How convinced are you that we're going to know in the next few decades? Well, I bet people cups of coffee on that. And... Um, <laughs> So, Guy, if you want a cup of coffee, yeah. you know, within, within a couple of decades, I think we will find life in space. And I, I think that unless life is very rare or very hard to detect, uh, we, we will succeed uh, relatively soon. Now, let me tell you about some aspect of this that uh, uh, people don't think about, and that is what, what happens. Suppose that, you know, the, the, what I say is true. I mean, who knows? But... Suppose it happens. Suppose sometime in the next two dozen years we pick up a faint line that tells us we have some cosmic company. What is the effect? What's the consequence? And the answer is we don't know the answer. We don't know what that's going to do to you, not in the long term, and not even very much in the short term. I mean, that would be a, a, a bit like asking Chris Columbus in 1491, hey, Chris, you know, what happens if it turns out that there's a continent between here and Japan, where you're sailing to, what will be the consequences for humanity if that turns out to be the case? I mean, Chris probably would offer you some, some answer that you might not have understood, but it probably wouldn't have been right. And I think that to predict what finding ET is going to mean, we can't predict that either. But here are a couple of things I can say. To begin with, it's going to be a society that's way in advance of our own. You're not going to hear from alien Neanderthals. They're not building transmitters. They're going to be ahead of us, maybe by a few thousand years, maybe by a few million years, but substantially ahead of us. And that means if you can understand anything that they're going to say, then you might be able to short-circuit history by getting information from a society that's way beyond our own. Now, you might find that a bit hyperbolic, and maybe it is, but nonetheless, it's conceivable that this will happen. And, you know, you could consider this like, I don't know, giving Julius Caesar English lessons in the key to the Library of Congress. It would change his day. What is it about you that, that pushes you to keep looking? Like, to keep searching uh, for something that most people would never devote their lives to? Well, first off, it's very interesting. It's curiosity. A lot of it is curiosity. Uh, people who are not scientists don't always understand why scientists will beaver away on some fairly arcane question for an entire career, not appreciating that they're doing it simply because they're curious. They want to be the first to know something about nature. This is uh, a little bit unlike many jobs in the sense that you're dealing with a very big 
picture question. There's no guarantee you're going to succeed, but if you do, it's really interesting and potentially very important. I mean, is is the search just as important as the goal? In some sense, I think that it is. I think just doing the search is, is important. I tend to liken this to the existence of Terra Australis, the, the continent that was hypothesized to exist at the bottom of the globe, yeah. what we call Antarctica now. Because for a long time, up until the 1800s, nobody really had seen the place. They just thought, well, it's kind of reasonable. There might be something there. But then again, maybe not. And you could just drink a whole lot of beer and talk about it in the bars till early in the morning. And that would never answer the question. To answer that question, you have to do the experiment. Somebody has to build some ships, fund them, send them down there and take a look. And that's sort of where we are with SETI. You know, you can argue they, they're likely to be there, they're not likely to be there, but in the end, doing the experiment is the important thing. SETI, I think, is important because it's exploration, and it's not only exploration, it's comprehensible exploration. Now, I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm you know, always reading books about explorers. I find exploration very interesting. Uh, Arctic exploration, you know, people like Magellan, Amundsen, Shackleton, uh, you see Franklin down there, Scott, all these guys. It's really nifty. Exploration. They're, they're just doing it because they want to explore. And you might say, oh, that's kind of a frivolous opportunity, but that's not frivolous. That's not a frivolous activity. Because, I mean, think of ants. You know, most ants are programmed to follow one another along in a, in a long line. But there are a couple ants, maybe 1% of those ants, that are what they call pioneer ants. And they're the ones that wander off. They're the ones you find on the kitchen countertop. You get, Got to get them with your thumb before they find the sugar or something. Okay. But those ants, even though most of them get wiped out, those ants are the ones that are essential to the survival of the hive. So exploration is important. What if you never find that thing that you're searching for? Well, that's sort of an interesting question because the fact that you didn't find it, does that mean anything? Is that hmm. significant in some sense? And the answer to that is probably it's not because... You can never prove that they're not out there. I mean, who hasn't stood outside at night, looked up at the stars and wondered, you know, do you think there's anybody up there that's looking up back this way? I'm sure cavemen would have asked that question. I don't think that's a new question. I, I think we're kind of hardwired to be interested in other creatures that are at least as clever as we are. Because aliens, they represent the tribe on the other side of the hill. Seth Jostak is an astronomer at SETI. He's also the author of Confessions of an Alien Hunter. Watch his full talk at ted.npr.org. Just promise me one thing. Okay. Uh, if they do land on Earth, can you please promise me you will at least take them to um, In-N-Out Burger? <laughs> There's one right nearby. Coming up on the show, writer and comedian John Hodgman is here. Yes, I have not been taken away by aliens. That would be a fun ending to this radio appearance. John Hodgman's own story of searching for life from another world that's coming up later. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First to ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and waiting for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter can help. Their technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash radio hour. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Thanks also to Zoom Video Communications. Video conferencing has changed the way we do business. Meet happy anytime, anywhere with Zoom, connecting team members across the globe. Imagine seeing 25 people on the screen at once in digital video. Share anything, a file, a video, a photo, via desktop, laptop, tablet, or mobile. Visit zoom.us to set up your free account today and meet happy with Zoom Video Communications. Zoom.us. 
Hi, I'm Stacey Vanek-Smith from NPR's Planet Money podcast, a business and economics podcast for everyone, even if you don't think you like business and economics. Every week, we find stories that help make the world make a little more sense. Like, why is milk in the back of the store? How did credit reports get started? Or where does North Korea get its money? Listen to Planet Money on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, in search of ideas about looking for that elusive thing. And Edith Witter does most of her searching underwater. Often in the dark and always wondering, you know, how many animals are there out there just beyond the reach of my vision or my lights that I can't see, but they can see me. Edith is a marine biologist. She's made a career out of searching for rare, deep-sea creatures. And the most elusive? The giant squid. Giant squid aren't rare. Based on the number of beaks that have been found in the stomachs of sperm whales, it's thought that there are actually millions of them in the ocean, and yet we haven't seen them. Millions of them? Yep. Wow. But up until a few years ago, no one had ever filmed one alive until Edith Witter found a way to do it. She tells the story on the TED stage. The Kraken, a beast so terrifying, it was said to devour men and ships and whales, and so enormous it could be mistaken for an island. In assessing the merits of such tales, it's probably wise to keep in mind that old sailors saw that the only difference between a fairy tale and a sea story is a fairy tale begins once upon a time, and a sea story begins, this ain't no Every fish that gets away grows with every telling of the tale. Nevertheless, there are giants in the ocean, and we now have video proof, as those of you that saw the Discovery Channel documentary are no doubt aware. I was one of the three scientists on this expedition that took place last summer off Japan. That expedition, by the way, wasn't the first attempt to film the giant squid. There were dozens of attempts before, but the problem had always been the technology. And before Edith came along, most of the technology used in deep dives was noisy, with bright lights... ...that are going to scare any sensible animal away. So for that giant squid hunt, Edith designed a special machine that fixed both of those problems. No thrusters, no motors, just a battery-powered camera, and the only illumination coming from red light that's invisible to most deep-sea animals that are adapted to see primarily blue. That's visible to our eye, but it's the equivalent of infrared in the deep sea. So this camera platform, which we called the Medusa, could just be thrown off the back of the ship, attached to a float at the surface with over 2,000 feet of line. It would just float around, passively carried by the currents, and the only light visible to the animals in the deep would be the blue light of the optical lure. Edith and the other two scientists headed to the waters just southeast of Japan with a documentary crew from the Discovery Channel. And they were hoping that this new approach would work. Did you have any doubts that you would find it, that you would get this footage? I had a lot of doubts that we'd get a giant squid. I thought I'd probably get some pretty interesting footage. But you just don't know what you're going to find when you're out in the ocean. And it's a very, very big ocean. When we first got to the Okasawara Islands off mainland Japan, my first dive was devastating to me because there was nothing in that water column. And I thought, oh, this is a disaster. That, that looked like luminescence, maybe. I saw a flash. This is audio from that expedition. And then on the second deployment of my camera system... Oh, my God. Oh. Okay, so this yeah. is... A- We got the first imagery of a giant squid coming in on camera and stroking the optical lure. (laughs) All right. And everybody just went crazy. It was just the most thrilling moment, I think, of most of our careers, 
to actually see that footage. And what a gorgeous, gorgeous creature it turned out to be. It was bronze and silver, and it would change back and forth. And it had this absolutely fantastic eye that was looking right at us. It was just amazing. That was the first time anybody had seen this giant squid alive uh, in the ocean? Yeah, and it was actually kind of cool that there were television cameras rolling all the time. And so they caught that moment, you know, the thrilling moment why many of us become scientists is just that moment of discovery. I still get goosebumps every time I see it. It was absolutely breathtaking. And had this animal had its feeding tentacles intact and fully extended, it would have been as tall as a two-story house. How could something that big live in our ocean and yet remain unfilmed until now? We've only explored about 5% of our ocean. There are great discoveries yet to be made down there. Fantastic creatures representing millions of years of evolution and possibly bioactive compounds that could benefit us in ways that we can't even yet imagine. Do you think that like the search or like the chase is the thing that like that keeps you at it? I mean, wh why do you explore? Exploring is an innate part of being human. We're all explorers when we're born. Unfortunately, it seems to get drummed out of many of us as we get older, but it's there, I think, in all of us. And for me, uh, that moment of discovery is just so thrilling on any level that I think anybody that's experienced it is pretty quickly addicted to it. Is there something that you have a hunch about that might be down there that we don't know for sure that, that you're looking for? No, the one thing I've learned <laughs> exploring the deep is you just can't even begin to imagine some of the bizarre creatures that are down there. I don't have any hunches at all except that we're going to be amazed. Marine biologist and deep sea explorer Edith Witter you should definitely see her full TED Talk and those incredible images of the giant squid at TED.com. So what if you think you've found that thing, that thing that you've been searching for, and it ends up being too good to be true? And then it actually leads you to find something better. Well, that's sort of what happened to Dan Barber. It was very fatty. Uh, and and I gotta say, I really loved it, and I told everyone about it. Dan's a chef in New York. I am the chef and co-owner of Blue Hill and Blue Hill at Stone Barts. And that fatty, delicious thing he found was a fish. It happened while he was searching the world for delicious and sustainable foods. He wrote about it in his book, The Third Plate. And that fish had temporarily changed his life as Dan explained from the TED stage. It was a beautiful fish. Flavorful, textured, meaty. A bestseller on the menu. Even better, it was farm-raised to the supposed highest standards of sustainability. So you could feel good about selling it. One day, the head of the company called and asked if I'd speak at an event about the farm sustainability. Absolutely, I said. Here was a company trying to do it right. I wanted to support him. The day before the event, I called the head of PR for the company. Let's call him Don. Don, I said, just to get the facts straight, you guys are famous for, for farming so far out to sea, you, you don't pollute. That's right, he said. We're so far out, the waste from our fish gets distributed, not concentrated. That feed conversion ratio? 2.5 to 1, he said, best in the business. 2.5 what? what? What are you feeding? Sustainable proteins, he said. Great, I said. Got off the phone. And that night, I was lying in bed, and I thought, what the hell is a sustainable protein? <laughs> so the next day, just before the event, I called Don. I said, Don, what are some examples of sustainable proteins? He said he didn't know. He would ask around. Well, I got on the phone with the head biologist. Let's call him Don, too. <laughs> Don, I said... What are some examples of sustainable proteins? Well, he mentioned some algaes and some fish meals. And then he said chicken pellets. Feathers, skin, bone meal, scraps dried and processed into feed. 
I said, what percentage of your feed is chicken? Oh, it's about 30%, he said. I said, Don, what's sustainable about feeding chicken to fish? <laughs> there was a long pause on the line. And he said, there's just too much chicken in the world. Okay, I fell out of love with this fish. Now, not because I'm some self-righteous, goody-two-shoes foodie. I actually am. <laughs> now, I fell out of love with this fish because I swear to God, after that conversation, the fish tasted like chicken. So you, so you must have thought, like, my God, I've been totally deluding myself. Right. For a guy whose, whose craft is based on what my tongue is telling me is real about what I'm, what I'm tasting, that was upsetting. It's like I couldn't taste it, you know, and I'd been duped at my own game. So admittedly, that was a big blow for Dan. But it was okay because he kept searching for that delicious, sustainable fish. And one day, he finally found it. I tasted something that was so delicious, I was so greedy to get that from my own. And it happened at a restaurant. Yeah, it was at a, just a kind of random restaurant. In Spain. Yeah. Where Dan ordered a piece of fish. It was a farm-raised fish. And it looked overcooked. Pretty bitterly. <laughs> But when he cut into it... It wasn't dry. It wasn't dry. And the taste, it was amazing. It totally blew him away. Well, it was the skin that got me first, because I generally take the skin off of fish. But here was the skin that was as crackling as a piece of thin glass. I mean, it was incredible. And, and the flavor was just so crisp and sweet. It was really sweet and, and, and tasted of the sea. So I was wildly impressed right there. And then by the time I had devoured this little six-ounce piece of fish, I just thought, this is something I've never had before. He had to know where it came from. So he decided he'd go look for it. And he went to a fish farm unlike any other he'd ever been to. It's called Veta La Palma in the southwestern corner of Spain. What struck me at first was just the enormity of it. It's It's tens of thousands of acres of what is essentially wetlands uh, that are uh, uh, punctuated by these systematically connected uh, canals. And as far as your eye can see in every direction, it's quite stunning. And that's where Dan met Miguel, a biologist. He's an amazing guy. Like three parts Charles Darwin and one part Crocodile Dundee. Okay. <laughs> There we are, slogging through the wetland. You know, I'm panting and sweating, I got mud up to my knees, and Miguel is calmly conducting a biology lecture. So I interrupted him, I said, Miguel, what makes your fish taste so good? He pointed at the algae. I know, dude, the algae, the phytoplankton, the relationships, it's, it's amazing, right? But what are your fish eating? Well, he goes on to tell me, it's such a rich system that the fish are eating what they'd be eating in the wild. The plant biomass, the phytoplankton, the zooplankton, it's what feeds the fish. The system is so healthy, it's totally self-renewing. Ever heard of a farm that doesn't feed its animals? Well, at that moment, we rounded the corner and saw the most amazing sight, thousands and thousands of pink flamingos. That's success, he said. Look at their bellies, pink, they're feasting. Miguel, aren't they feasting on your fish? <laughs> Yes, he said. <laughs> we lose 20% of our fish and fish eggs to birds. I said, Miguel, isn't a thriving bird population like the last thing you want on a fish farm? <laughs> he shook his head. No, he said, this is an ecological network. Flamingos eat the shrimp. The shrimp eat the phytoplankton. So the pink of the belly, the better the system. And then I realized the water that flows through that farm comes in from the Guadalquivir River. It's a river that carries with it all the things that rivers tend to carry these days. And when it works its way through the system, the water is cleaner than when it entered. And not just for those fish, but for you and me as well. Because when that water leaves, it dumps out into the Atlantic. A drop in the ocean, I know, but I'll take it and so should you. Because this love story 
is also instructive. You might say it's a recipe for the future of good food. Wow. So, I mean, you have found the holy grail for what you, like what you just said, like for the future of good food. Well, I, I've had sort of a late inning revelation around that kind of question. I mean, I tend to, and in the writing of this book, what I set out to do was look at single ingredients and go back and, and research, well, what's the recipe that made them so delicious? Uh, so those were all holy grails in one way or another. I mean, the overriding search was for this, this incredible cuisine that I could create around these superlative products. But ultimately, I think that was short-sighted. I think the holy grail is to think about systems thinking. And I have yet to find a delicious piece of fish, steak, carrot, that if I discover that, I invariably discover great ecological decisions that are behind them. Uh, In other words, a great-tasting carrot doesn't come from denuded soils or bad landscapes or from a bad seed or from a thoughtless farmer. The uh, continuity between uh, great-tasting food and the responsible way with which we use our land is pretty absolute. Is is being on the search, is is that an inherent part of who you are? I'm pretty curious, I guess, for sure. But, uh, I mean, there's a kind of part of of human nature, I think, that evolved with a forced curiosity about food, uh, in part because it could kill us uh, or it could make us exceedingly healthy and therefore stronger and therefore have more children and and whatnot. That's kind of a basic sort of evolutionary look at, at a very complicated question. And we've forgotten it because we have been so removed from the nuts and bolts of, of farming and agriculture that we forget that, that one of the basic human needs isn't just food, it's, it's a story and a connectiveness uh, to where the food is coming from. Dan Barber is a chef and restaurant owner. You can check out all of his talks at TED.com. Uh, next up, uh, John, can you introduce yourself, please? My name is John Hodgman. And um, Do you need uh, more? No, that's I mean, that's great. That should be explanatory to all of humanity. Uh, so uh, you're you're a writer, a humorist. Is, is humorist weird? Is it like a weird word? No, not at all. It just sounds like you know being a humorist is much easier than being a comedian, which is also what I am sometimes. A humorist does not need to produce laughter. A humorist just needs to produce wry chuckles among the arched eyebrow set. How to cook an owl? Seven hundred hobo names. Nine presidents who had hooks for hands. These are just a few of the subjects John Hodgman covers in his book trilogy of complete world knowledge. But one of his favorite subjects is the idea of alien abduction. May I just say, I think I understand why there is a pervasive phenomena of people describing the same alien abduction experience of being visited in the middle of the night by strange beings who need to perform operations on us. Well, why? Most humans have worn diapers as children, and most humans had them changed in the middle of the night. John Hodgman's complete world knowledge, we should mention, is not necessarily true. But his story about searching for life from another planet is. And we'll hear it in just a minute. I'm Guy Raz, and this is the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Stonyfield Organic Kids. If you like organic stuff and your kids like yummy stuff, Stonyfield makes it easy. With a whole bunch of organic yogurt treats like convenient cups, pouches, smoothies, and tubes, they're always ready to go. And best of all, Stonyfield is made without the use of toxic persistent pesticides, artificial hormones, antibiotics, or GMOs. If you're ready for yum, visit stonyfield.com NPR. Thanks also to Starbucks. For the past 43 years, Starbucks has served their bold signature espresso. But for the first time ever, they're introducing a second espresso, Starbucks Blonde Espresso. 
It's smooth and subtly sweet. So whatever your drink is, from a flat white to an iced Americano, try it with Starbucks Blonde Espresso. And as always, you can order ahead on your Starbucks app. When C.C. Wong met his mom's new tenant, he never suspected he'd end up getting replaced as a son, or that his replacement might have sinister motives. This week, Invisibilia looks at the things we don't say to our loved ones and the misunderstandings it can lead to. Listen on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, In Search Of. And the thing about searching, whether it's for aliens or for a giant squid, is that sometimes... The search is really just about waiting, which is what writer John Hodgman's search was about, too. His search, or actually his wait, is really a story that you kind of have to hear in full. So we're going to play it now, front to back, and then we'll talk to John after. Here it is. In the summer of 1950, Enrico Fermi, the Italian-American physicist and atomic pile builder, went to lunch at Los Alamos National Laboratory and joined some colleagues there and asked them a question, where is everybody? This confused his colleagues, obviously, because they were sitting right there with him. And then he had to clarify that he wasn't talking about them. He was talking about the space aliens. You see, this was only a few years after the supposed flying saucer crash at Roswell, New Mexico. And even though that turned out to be nothing, nothing at all, Still, America had gone saucer-mad, even famous scientists who were eating lunch. Fermi's reasoning, if I may paraphrase badly, is that the universe is so vast that it stands to reason there should be other intelligent life out there, and the universe is so old that unless we were the very first civilization ever to evolve, uh, we should have some evidence of their existence by now. And yet, to the best of our knowledge, we are alone. Where is everybody? Asked Fermi, and his colleagues had no answer. Fermi then went on with the same blunt logic to disprove fairies, Sasquatch, God, the possibility of love, and thereafter, as you know, Enrico Fermi ate alone. <laughs> now, I am not a scientist. However, with respect, I might point out two possibilities that Enrico Fermi perhaps did not consider. One is that the aliens might be very far away, perhaps, I dare say, even on other planets. <laughs> the other possibility is perhaps Enrico Fermi himself was an alien. <laughs> Think about it. Isn't it a little convenient that in the midst of the world war, out of nowhere, suddenly an Italian scientist showed up with an amazing new technology that would transform everything in the world and darken our history of the human species forever after? And isn't it a little strange that he required no payment for this? That, that he asked for only one thing, a gift of two healthy sperm whales? That's, that's not true, but it is strange. Four, it is given in certain UFOlogy or ufology circles that the aliens are already here and have been for millennia, that they have walked among us in disguise, observing us, guiding our evolution from ape to man, if you believe in that sort of thing, <laughs> and occasionally kidnapping us in their flying saucers and taking us away to have sex with us in pyramids. <laughs> it's a difficult theory to discount. I think you'll agree. <laughs> for even in my own life, there are memories I have that are difficult to explain, happenings that are so odd and unaccountably weird that it is difficult to imagine they were not the result of prolonged and frequent contact with aliens throughout my life. For how else will you explain the amazing and absolutely true close encounters that I had and will describe to you now? Encounter 1, Ocean City, New Jersey, 1980. This was the summer when the special edition of Close Encounters of the Third Kind was released, and I went on vacation with my parents to the Jersey Shore. Within 12 hours, I was horribly sunburned, just like Richard Dreyfuss in the movie. <laughs> and so I spent the rest of the vacation 
largely sitting outside our little rental house at night, the sidewalk still warm from the sun, watching the skies for UFOs. What did I see? Stars, satellites, blinking airplanes, typical sky junk. Occasionally, kids would come and join me and watch, but their necks soon got sore and they would go off to the boardwalk to play video games and mingle with humans. I was pretty good at the video games. I was not very good at the other part, so I stayed <laughs> alone with the cosmos. And that's when it happened. An elderly couple came walking down the street. I would say they were in their late 70s. And I would say that they were on a date because he was wearing a very neat little suit with a yellow tie, brown suit, and she was wearing a cardigan because it was now fully night now and a chill was coming in off the ocean. I remember for some reason that they were exactly the same height. And then they stopped and the man turned to me and said, what are you looking for? Flying saucers? <laughs> we have to admit that's a pretty boss piece of detective work for an old man on a date. <laughs> But what was stranger still, and even I realized it at the time as a nine-year-old child, was that they stopped at all, that this old man would interrupt his moonlight stroll with his sweetheart with the precise reason of making fun of a child. <laughs> oh, he said, little green men. And then his girlfriend joined in too. There's no such thing as spacemen, she said. There's no such thing. And then they both laughed. Ha, ha, ha. I looked around. The street was entirely empty. I had stopped hearing the sound of the ocean. It was as though time had stopped. I did not know why they were teasing me. I looked into their strangely angry faces and I remember wondering, are they wearing rubber masks? <laughs> And what would be behind those rubber masks if they were? And they turned at once and walked away. The old man reached out his knobbly claw for the uh, woman's hand and found it and left me alone. Now, you could describe this as a simple misunderstanding, a strange encounter among humans. Maybe it was swamp gas, but <laughs> I know what I saw. Close encounter two, Brookline, Massachusetts, 1984, I went to see the movie Dune, and a girl talked to me. Now, on its face, <laughs> this is impossible on its face, I realize, but it is absolutely true. It was opening night, naturally. I went with my friend Tim McGonigal, who sat on my left. On my right was the girl in question. She had long, curly black hair, a blue jean jacket. I remember she had some sort of injury to her ankle, an ace bandage, and she had crutches. She didn't go to my school. I didn't know her name, and I never will. She was sitting with someone who I presume was her mother, and they were talking about the novel Dune. They were both big fans, mother and daughter, very unusual. <laughs> they were talking about how their favorite characters were the giant sandworms. And then it got stranger. That's when she turned to me and said, are you looking forward to seeing the movie? First of all, I was embarrassed because I had not read the novel Dune at that time. I was merely a connoisseur of movies featuring desert planets, as I still am. <laughs> But it was also the tone of how she asked the question, apropos of nothing, like she didn't even care about the answer, as though she just wanted to talk to me. I did not know what to say. I said, yes. I did not even turn my head. <laughs> the movie began. I need not remind you that this was David Lynch's version of Dune, in which all of the characters were sexy and deformed at the same time. <laughs> When the movie ended, everyone seemed very happy to get up and get out of the theater as soon as possible. <laughs> Except for the girl. As I walked out, her pace slowed. Perhaps it was the crutches. But it seemed... <laughs> It seemed as though she might want to talk to me again. When I say it out loud, it sounds so ridiculous that I can only come to the conclusion that it was what in the alien abductee community they call a screen memory, a ridiculous false recollection designed by the brain to cover up some trauma, say, of being kidnapped and flown off to a sex pyramid. And so I sure am glad I did not slow down to talk to her. I sure am glad I never saw her again. Close Encounter 3, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 1989. In the late, uh, mid to late 80s, uh, the novelist Whitley Strieber wrote a book called Communion, 
in which he described his own lifelong experience as being abducted by aliens. And he also described the phenomenon known in this community as lost time, where Whitley Strieber would suddenly become aware that he could not remember the previous 10 minutes or the previous 10 hours or the previous 10 days and would come to the conclusion that that was when the aliens were taking him and giving him rectal probes. <laughs> this book became, naturally, an enormous bestseller. And it was so successful that they made it into a movie. And in 1989, the way I remember it, I was in Philadelphia with, visiting my girlfriend, and we decided, apropos of nothing, to go see this movie. And the way I remember it, the movie featured these details. One, Whitley Strieber was played by Christopher Walken. Two, the alien was played by a rubber puppet. <laughs> Three, there was a surprisingly long sequence of the film in which the rubber puppet gives Christopher Walken a rectal probe. <laughs> Does something seem strange about this to you? Something odd, something off, something wrong with this picture? Think about it. Yes. The answer is, I had a girlfriend. What? <laughs> How did this happen? When did this happen? I remember walking out of the theater and becoming suddenly aware of this fact as we walked hand in hand and pondering these very same questions. And to this day, I have no answer for you. Close Encounter 4, The Algarve, Portugal, 1991. Some years later, I and this woman, we'll call her Catherine Fletcher, <laughs> went traveling through the south of Portugal together. We stayed in old, crumbling, walled cities in tiny little hotels, and we would climb up to the roof and drink vino verde and watch the sunset and play checkers. What? Did we do this? Really? Does anyone do this? Not in my life. For what it's worth, we went to Sagres, which was considered at the time to be the end of the world, and there I was chased by a pack of feral dogs on the dock, and the lead dog bit me on the ass requiring me to go to a strange Portuguese clinic and receive an ass shot. Make of that what you will. <laughs> Our last day in Portugal, we were in the district capital of Faro, and Catherine decided that she wanted to go to the beach one last time. Now, Faro is a bustling little city, and to get to the beach, she explained, you would have to take a bus and then a boat. And did I want to come with? But I was exhausted and dog-bitten, and so I said no. I remember what she looked like, before she left. The freckles had grown and multiplied on her face and shoulders, clustering into a kind of a tan. A tan. We were both tan. Is this true? Her eyes were extra bright and extra blue as a result. She was smiling. She was a single woman about to go alone into a country, not even speaking the language, to travel alone by bus and boat to go to a beach she did not know or had never seen. I loved her, and then she went out into that strange alien land. It took me some time to come to my senses. I had my own lost time moment where I woke up and suddenly realized it was very late in the day, almost dinner time, and she had not come back. Nervous, I went down to the street to look for her. Now, I did not speak Portuguese. Uh, I did not know where the beach was. I could not call her on a cell phone because this was 1991, and the aliens had not given us that technology yet. <laughs> I realized that the day would only have two possible outcomes. Either Catherine would come back to the hotel, or she would never come back to the hotel. And so I sat down to wait. I did not watch the skies, but the very end of the street, where the buses and cars and pedestrians and little scooters were moving along, and I watched those constellations shift, hoping that they would part and I would see her face. It was at that moment, in that very small town of 30,000 or so, that I truly appreciated the vastness of the universe and the searching we might do in it. And that's when the Liberians came along. Five young men, all laughing, happy, traveling together, coming back to this hotel where they were staying. One of them was named Joseph, and he asked me, what was I doing? And I explained. And he said, don't worry. He was sure that Catherine would be safe. But he did not seem so very sure, for he sat down to wait with me. And for the next two hours, they all waited with me, taking turns, going up to their room, coming back, telling me jokes, distracting me. Two hours, they gave me a message. We are not alone. And then in the middle of a sentence, at the very birth of twilight, I turned and looked down the street. The stars aligned, and she came back. She was smiling. She did not understand why I was so worried. Neither did the Liberians. 
though there was a huge amount of relief in their laughter as they clapped us on the back and went back up to the room and left us alone in the street holding hands. An event like this leaves a scar on the memory, much like a piece of alien technology that has been inserted into your buttocks by a Portuguese doctor. <laughs> and even now, a decade and a half later, even now that we are married, I look for her still whenever she is not in the room. And even though I think you will agree it is probable that during the time she was away, she was kidnapped and replaced by an alien clone. <laughs> I love her and wait for her still. Thank you for your kind attention. That's writer and humorist John Hodgman on the TED stage. Uh, are, John, are you, you are still with us, right? Yes, I have not been taken away by aliens. Not, that, not would be, that would be a fun ending to this radio yeah. appearance. So, um, so this, this started out as a story about a search for aliens, and it, it kind of ends as a story about searching for love, and, um, and really the love part for you seemed the, the more improbable one. Right, and you know, in, in many ways it's not a story about searching for love. It's a story about waiting. And the fact is that for humanity, waiting for aliens is equally as improbable. But that doesn't mean you don't sit out on the steps and wait and hope. So after listening to your story and then, and then the other people that we heard from earlier talking about, about searching, I wonder if the thing that propels the search is like not knowing. Not knowing is a very, a very hard thing for the human mind to tolerate. And, you know, that really was the lesson that I understood in Portugal at the end. You can contemplate the stars um, literally for your entire life, but the, you don't understand the true size of the world until someone you care about is out there in it and you don't know where. That is when the universe really feels big. And when they come back, it feels good. I'll never forget that fabulous thrill That wonderful day the earth stood still You appeared in a halo of heavenly light Were you real? Really real? Or just a meteorite? John's got another great TED Talk at TED.com. He's got a great podcast. You can find it at MaximumFun.org. It's called Judge John Hodgman. Thanks for listening to our show this week on Searching. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Sanaz Meshkanpour, and Neva Grant, with help from Daniel Shukin, Portia Robertson-Migas, and Eric Newsom. Our partners at TED include Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. You left without a trace. I guess you couldn't stand the pace. What magic did you bring from? Wherever did you spring from? You fascinating thing from outer space. Nine.